Hey, thanks for downloading Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. I'm glad that you are a podcast listener. God be praised for that. Today we take up a number of questions that you've submitted. We talk about angels, demons, horror movies. We talk about fasting, the baptism of Jesus, historical criticism. I think you'll enjoy this one. It's kind of grab bag, uh, clearing out the email. So enjoy and let us know what you think. You can always send your own questions or feedback through the comment section at wolfmuller.co. Here's the show. Hey, welcome to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. And this is every Monday we come we come at you to to take away the the devil's success in tempting us to theological boredom. Uh, which is really great. I'm, uh, again, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and delighted to be with you uh, here today. We're going to do a grab bag of questions from the listener email. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven questions here. We'll see We'll see how we do. Uh, questions about fasting, about the baptism of Jesus, about historical criticism, about watching horror movies, about the demons and the angels, about does God kill people? This is, we got a a great uh, thing. So if um, so, stay tuned, and uh, if you're interested in any of these, uh, they will uh, they will come up throughout the the um, throughout the show today. Now, if you have questions yourself and you'd like to submit them, the best way to do that, I think almost all of these questions came through the website wolfmuller.co, like Colorado wolfmuller.co, and you can submit your questions there. There's like a contact form or a button or something there. And you can send me your questions, and we'll make some videos or some audio or answer them here on the podcast. You can find a lot of other theology also uh, on the website, wolfmuller.co. There's blogs, videos, the Martin Luther podcast, which is working its way through the large catechism, uh, some trips that were taken, a bunch of other stuff like that. So uh, so there you go. All right, let's get to it. Uh, Ian, you there? Yes, I am. I'm, wonder, I'm wondering what you. So you're gonna. This is grab bag for you. I want to hear what you want to hear about. So I got. I mean, we might try to get to a bunch of these questions. But which one sounds more interesting to you? Here, I'll, let me give you the topics again. Does God kill people? Why was Jesus baptized? What do people mean when they say Christianity is a religion, not a relationship? What do we say? We Lutherans say about fasting. Should a Christian watch horror movies? What does the Bible teach about angels? Or how do we read the Bible? And what do we say about his historical criticism and the Holy Spirit speaking through culture. Which one of those sounds most interesting to start? I would have to say I think the fasting one sounds very interesting. All right, here it is. This is from Kristen who writes, Hi, Pastor, could you make a video or do some uh, talking about fasting? Specifically, how might fasting be helpful or hurtful to someone? How do we understand fasting as a general spiritual discipline? How do we understand fasting as a way to prepare for the Lord's Supper? What are the different historical traditions about fasting? And what are the proper ways and times to fast? Is fasting commanded as something that's helpful to us, similar to prayer? Also, what about what Jesus says about fasting in Matthew chapter 6 and chapter 9? You at some I heard you make a distinction uh Christian continues about someone choosing to fast versus fasting being required what's going on there and here's a practical question if you're fasting before coming to the Lord's supper and there's a church breakfast before the service what should you do that's a question and Christian thanks for this question this is really really great the bible okay so Jesus assumes that the two biblical texts let's start there that Christian mentions are Matthew chapter 9 and Matthew chapter Six in Matthew chapter six verse nineteen. This is the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, "When you're fasting, don't put, don't uh, anoint your head with oil. Don't go around all groggy and grumpy, so that everybody knows it. In other words, when you're fasting, don't let anybody know, so that your Father who sees in secret will reward you in secret." And then in Matthew 19, the Pharisees asked Jesus a question about fasting, and he says, while the, while the bridegroom is here, the attendants don't fast, but when he's taken, they will fast. It's the assumption of the Scriptures and of Jesus, who doesn't say if you fast, but when you fast. It's the assumption that the Christian will fast. Now, what, what is fasting? We normally think about fasting as not eating, and that's the most basic form of fasting, but but the basic idea of fasting is that you simply don't, you do not give your fleshly desires what they want. So the chief way is to, is when our stomach growls at us and tells us, hey, you should feed me, we say to our stomach, no. 
You you are not the boss. But there's a lot of other ways of fasting. There's the there's watchings. This is an old spiritual discipline of staying up even through the night to pray uh, and to watch and to and to fight spiritually through our prayers. Uh, there's also there's other kinds of fasting. You know, people are always nowadays going on a social media fast. There's a way that you can fast by skipping a meal, not like skipping uh, eating for an entire day, but skipping a meal or skipping a couple of meals or removing certain foods from your meal. So, for example, there's a Catholic tradition of not eating meat on Friday in celebration of the Lord's in- incarnation. So there's a lot of different ways uh, that we can fast, but the more, maybe the more important question is why. Now, here's the key thing I think we need to remember. We don't often talk about this, but our life of sanctification has both a positive part and a negative part. Sanctification here, I mean the growth of good works that follows faith in Christ, that the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us and, in fact, is teaching us and also giving us the strength to love God and to love our neighbor. Now, that's the positive side, the acts of love, but there's also a negative side to our sanctification, and that is that we fight against sin or we fight against the flesh. We're actually putting the flesh to death. So all of us have the desires of the flesh, concupiscence, and lust, which is shaped after every different commandment. So lust is a sixth commandment, lust, which has to do with sexual morality. You have a fifth commandment, lust, which is anger. A fourth commandment, lust, which is rebellion. A seventh commandment, lust, you shall not steal. That's greed. And so lust takes its shape according to all the different commandments. And we want to fight against that. And one of the ways we fight against our sinful desires is simply by not appeasing them. And the most basic practice to not appease the sinful desires is to fast. So our stomach says, hey, listen to what I'm saying to you. I'm saying you have to feed me. And we say to our stomach, you are not my God. I have someone who is, in fact, higher than you. I'm not going to go around just filling you and doing whatever you say. I have a God whom I serve, and he's greater than my stomach. So that we exercise uh, discipline over our flesh and over our body for the purpose of uh, well, discipline for the purpose of subduing the flesh and putting those desires to death. Now, th- there's this great little Luth- little work, Luther, on the freedom of the Christian. I'm looking for it. I don't have it here. Uh, where he says, now, each person will know how to do this. So one of the important things is there's always this, there's a kind of, there's a Christian tradition of appointed fasts. So you have fast at Lent, fast on Friday, this sort of thing. The Lutherans generally said, no, we don't, we know that each person will know how to manage their own sinful desires in the way that they need to be managed. So we don't have appointed fasts. We, we follow the church here, but we don't have required fasts at any time. But we say, hey, as we wrestle against our own temptations and wrestle against our own flesh, we're going to know how best to remove those sinful desires from us as we strive for love for the neighbor. But we want to be careful. And this has to do with this question that Kristen asks about Say you have this conflict, like you're in the practice of not having breakfast before the Lord's Supper. That's a good old Lutheran tradition, that the first food that you eat on Sunday morning is the body and blood of Jesus. It's a good practice, uh, not required or anything. But what if you have a, what if you have a like a Easter breakfast before coming to communion? Should you should you go and have breakfast with everyone, or should you wait? Well, I think in this. I think in this sort of scheme. I mean, it's there's a matter of Christian freedom, so there's no set rule. But we want to know that our love for the neighbor is going to, the positive side of sanctification is going to be probably more important than the negative side of sanctification. In other words, if, if, it, if, there's a, if my fasting is getting in the way of my love for the neighbor, then I'm going, to, I'm going to eat and love my neighbor. If I try to fast so that I have more time for prayer and contemplation of the Scripture, but it makes me just absolutely miserable to be around, you know, I'm, grump, I'm like the guy in the Snickers commercial, you're not yourself when you're hungry. If I get hangry, <laughs> that's the word. If I get hangry, then I'm probably not going to be fasting when I know I have to be around people and all this sort of stuff. So, so we want to, the, the chief uh, command here is that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, one more, one more thing on fasting, and that is this distinction between self-chosen fasting and fasting that's chosen for us. Luther makes this distinction. He says, we, we always think about fasting as I'm choosing to not eat. But the problem is because I've chosen not to eat, I can also choose when I want to eat. And it's all about my own will and this sort of thing. The true fast is when the Lord lays it on you, when he says, hey, 
you're going to go hungry for a while when there's a when there's a famine or even for us it's probably not a famine but it probably looks like the doctor saying don't eat for two days before you have these tests or whatever and we think well that doesn't count as a spiritual discipline because i didn't actually choose it well that's actually the true thing is when the lord puts us through the ringer it's we don't choose it the lord chooses it for us he hands us over to this cross or this affliction then we're saying okay Thy will be done, not my will be done. So there's a true form of fasting connected to connected to the the deprivations of this life. So I hope that's helpful, Kristen. This is a great question about fasting. I'm glad you picked that one, Ian. Uh, that's really good. All right, we're going to go to the next one now. So, Ian, you ready to choose the next question? Historical criticism, angels, horror movies, religion versus relationship, uh, God killing people, or... Why does John? Why does Jesus need to be baptized? Which one do you want to take up next? Uh, probably the horror movie one. I watch a lot of horror movies myself. You so. do? Yes. Oh well, this will be a good one for you. Robert asks, "Hello, Pastor Wolfmuller. My name is Robert. I'm 15 years old. I'm a big fan of horror movies, most of which involve demons and exorcisms. I have very recently become a confessional Lutheran, being drawn to sound theology and the freeing gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ." Most of my life, I've been told by people that Christians shouldn't watch scary movies. Is watching a horror movie sinful? Thank you, Robert. Well, Robert, I'm glad you asked the question. I'm glad, by the way, he's 15 years old. God be praised that you're thinking about these things uh, and that you, you have a confessional identity as a Lutheran. I'll tell you guys what, there's a lot of young people who are discovering the, the joy and clarity of Lutheran doctrine. It's just, it's really fantastic. So God be praised for that. Now, Robert, I'm going to give you some things to think about with this. I do not think you can just say, yes, it's a sin to watch horror movies. I don't think you can, I'd love to give an answer that's simple, uh, but I, I don't think you can. But I do think that it can be a sin, and we have to remember, first of all, this is the first thing, point one, that we can sin in our thoughts we, we normally think that if I think it, it's not a sin till I say it or till I do it. But our thoughts and even our desires can be sinful. Now, how do we know that? We know that probably from the commandments that say, you shall not covet. Now, co even if you don't act on it, if you want something that's not yours, if you have the desire for something that's not yours, that already is a sin. So God's law is covering not only our actions, our words and our deeds, the things that we do on the outside, but also the things that are happening on the inside. Now, this is especially, especially true with the sixth commandment. We have to be very extremely, extremely careful about our thought life when it has to do with marriage and intimacy and this sort of thing. And especially in our entertainment, because everything is saturated with sexuality and and we can sin even in our imagination so jesus says if you lust after a woman in your heart you've committed adultery so that our thought life can also condemn us but this is also true of the fifth commandment you shall not murder and of the third commandment which has to do with satanic arts and this sort of thing that we can even sin in our thoughts now this this makes us Especially, and this is point two, we, we want to be especially careful about what entertains us because our entertainment shapes our conscience. Now, there's four things, at least four things, but four things that I know of, that shape or mold our conscience. And our conscience, remember, is there telling us what's right and wrong, what's right and wrong that we do, what's right and wrong that other people do around us, and this sort of thing. And the four things that shape our conscience are culture, our peers, and God's law and man's law, understanding that natural law is included in there as well. So our culture and our peers, God's law and man's law. So who you're hanging around with, who your friends are, is actually shaping your conscience, what you think is right and wrong, what's okay for you to say and what's not, and so forth and so on. And so we have to be very careful about who our friends are. Paul, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, bad friends ruin good habits. But also our culture, and this has to do with our entertainment, the things that we give our attention to, this also shapes our conscience. So if we're watching stuff that has a lot of violence and a lot of darkness and a lot of, a lot of despair and so forth, that's going to be shaping our conscience as well. It's going to be shaping what we think is normal and what's not normal. So we need to be good stewards of our imagination. It's part of our Christian life 
to be good stewards of our thought life and the things that we imagine. So for watching things that are that are filled with filth or for watching things that are filled with horror, that are filled with gore, that are filled with the dark, the satanic, and the demonic, then we got to be really careful. And we want to remember also that while these things are presenting themselves as imaginary for our entertainment, that they're also real, that there is really a true such thing as demon possession. In fact, we talk about the trouble of the demons in three, I suppose, in three levels, that all of us are troubled by the demons, and then there's demon... Um, what, there's demon oppression and demon possession, and we want to be very, very careful. Look out for those things. Those, those things often do not look like they're told that they look, that we're told that they look like in the movies. It's kind of head spinning around backwards and all this kind of nonsense. But, but demon possession is a true thing, and being troubled by the demons is also a true thing. So we want to be careful as we're, as we're watching those things or as we're being entertained by those things that it's not shaping our conscience and making us filling us with despair or hopelessness or darkness, taking away our faith in Christ and this sort of thing. So I suppose, uh, Robert, my answer is I don't think it can be a sin, but it is something that we need to be very, very careful about. That we got to ask this question, and I think this is a good thing to ask after I watch a movie that's troubling me. How, does, how did that affect my conscience? Is that making me more sensitive to the Scriptures, or is it making me less sensitive to the scriptures and and so forth so i think that's the way that we want to think about that what do you think ian makes sense yeah. all right hey well, you're sending me the notes that we're gonna we gotta wind down here let's go to the break now how about that and we'll come back and we'll answer some more of these questions we're two down five to go uh question and answer day here on cross defense uh stay tuned we'll be right back This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for me. Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. I'm Gary Duncan, the General Manager of Worldwide KFUO. We promote our various programs. We ask you to listen to your favorite show. We ask you to support our broadcast ministry, and we thank you for that support. But maybe we don't ask you to pray for us as much as we should. Please pray for the staff, management, radio hosts, and volunteers here at Worldwide KFUO. Pray that the message of salvation through Christ is heard clearly by listeners around the world. Pray that we continue to reach into those areas that are hostile to the Word of God. Pray that KFUO continues to reach those people desperately needing to hear the good news message. And pray that God continues to bless us financially through the gifts we need to continue our broadcast ministry. Thank you for listening, supporting, and praying for Worldwide KFUO. You truly are appreciated. We are the messenger of good news. AM850 in St. Louis, worldwide at KFUO.org. Our listeners and supporters are talking about Worldwide KFUO. Yeah, I think your programming is just wonderful. I love the emphasis on the traditional tunes rather than the modern music. Keep up the good work. Thank you. To leave a message on the KFUO comment line, call 314-996-1542. That's 314-996-1542. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Worldwide KFUO. I cannot watch horror. I get scared if I watch a commercial for a horror movie. This is Pastor Brian Wolfman, by the way. You're listening to The Cross Defense, and we're taking your question. We're talking about horror movies, if it's a sin or not. And now we've got a next question, Ian. Okay, here we go. Historical criticism, angels, religion versus relationship, God killing people, or the baptism of Jesus. What's up next? Uh, probably God killing people. I know in the All Old right, Testament, in the Old Testament, we see a lot of different things, like the plagues, the angel of death, the bronze serpent. So, yeah, here's well, here's the question from the listener. I'm asking this question on behalf of my mother 
who has never had very much instruction regarding religion or the Bible. She recently started reading the Bible and has been troubled by one thing. God gave Moses the commandment, thou shalt not kill. Yet God himself killed and instructed others to kill. She's confused by this feeling of contradiction. Can you please help explain or to better understand? Now, this is, oh, this is a great question. So, okay, let's, let's walk way, uh, our way through a few things. First thing, the fifth commandment says, you shall not murder. And we want to make a distinction between killing and murder. And the distinction is this. Murder is unauthorized killing. Now, if there's unauthorized killing, that means there is authorized killing. And that authorized killing is, in fact, if you can even imagine it, that authorized killing is a good work. Now, before we go too far down that road, we want to remember that death itself is not part of the original creation. Death is not natural. Death is the result of sins. God says to Adam, on the day that you eat of it, dying you will die. So there's, so death is the result of the wages of sin is death, is how Paul says it in Romans chapter six. And 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 Paul also talks about in Romans, in, sorry, in First Corinthians fifteen. He says that death is the final enemy to be conquered. In fact, Jesus in his life and in his own death is fighting against death. So death is not God's um, perfect plan for us. And yet it comes along that there is sin and because of sin, there is death. And because of that, in order to, and this is seem, seems like a contradiction to us, but we want to think about it a little bit more, to protect human life and human flourishing, God gives the authority to kill people. Now, that that belongs first to God, but he gives it to the state, and that's what we call the power or the authority of the sword. So Paul talks about in Romans 13 how God has given the sword, and he has not given, given it in vain, that he, there's actually people who are authorized to kill other people. And that sword can be faced inwardly in society. That would be like the death penalty or law enforcement or judges who can give capital capital punishment to people that sword can also be faced outwardly and that would be like waging war so that the 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 state has the authority to to kill to prevent further death the picture and again this is a picture from luther it's a helpful picture though if you can imagine you get gangrene like the edge of your finger is dying and and once the the tip of your finger is dead, that that's just going to spread. Death is going to spread down your finger to the whole hand, to all your fingers, to your arm, and eventually to your whole body. So the only thing you can do is if part of your body has gangrene, is you take a knife and you cut it off. Now, you, you, you bring a little bit of death to prevent death taking over the whole thing. And that's what war is, and that's what prison is, and that's what capital punishment is, and so on and so forth. Now, God says... In Genesis chapter, this is an amazing text, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, I got it right here. This is after the flood, and Noah and his family are coming down out of the flood, and God in some ways is sort of rebooting creation, and he, he gives some instruction. Like, he gave instruction to Adam and Eve, you can eat the fruit. He gave instruction to Noah and his family, you can eat the animals now, so that they don't have to be, they're not just vegetation, uh, vegetarians anymore. And then he says this, this is Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, the, one of the amazing things about that is that the image of God was lost in the fall. Adam and Eve had a child, and it was after Adam's own image. We're all, we all bear the image of Adam, not the image of God any longer. And yet the Lord says that there is a dignity to humanity according to our createdness, and that means that life is to be protected. And if there's someone who's shedding someone else's blood, they themselves will have to be put to death. So that in the biblical way of thinking, the authority to kill is in fact protecting the gift of life. That, this is how this is not a contradiction. Now, one more thing on this um, for, the, for the listener uh, who asked this question, and that is that Jesus says that I have the authority to lay down my life and the authority to take it back up again. So while God has given the authority of the state to end life that uh, is a threat to other life, Jesus is the one who has the authority to take, to take death and turn it back into life. 
and he is the one who will stand, he says, on the last day and speak the names of all people, and the dead will come forth from the grave. So not only does God have the authority to kill, he has the authority to make alive. And in Christ, he's done that. And that will happen to us as well. So the Lord is killing, it's true, but he's killing with the intent of also raising us to newness of life. And that is his way of doing things. He doesn't make alive and then kill. He kills and then makes alive. And that's our hope in Christ. So great question. What do you think, Ian? Uh, I thought it was a good question, and uh, you answered it very well. Well, okay, that's you get extra points. This is our last show together, isn't it, Ian? Because I got to go travel, and then you got to go be not an intern anymore. Is that true? Yes. That is a sad thing. Well, good thing we're doing it together. Okay. Hey, we got four more questions. How are we doing on time? Pretty good. Jesus baptism, religion, relationship, angels, or historical criticism? Angels. Mm-hmm. All right, I got it right here. It says. This question is from Emma, who writes, What do Lutherans believe about angels? Rankings, names, if we have our guardian angels, etc. I just became Catholic after considering the Missouri Synod for quite a while. I'm still interested in learning. Thanks. First things first, Emma. Let's let's work on this Catholic business here. Now, there's not going to be much difference between the Lutherans and the Catholics on the doctrine of angels. The, but probably the one difference would be that the Catholics have the Apocrypha, the the kind of non-prophetic Old Testament, the sections between Malachi and uh, and the preaching of John the Baptist in the New Testament. And in there, you get one other angel name. Raphael, I think, comes in there because we only have other, otherwise we only have two angel names, Gabriel and Michael, given to us in the uh, prophetic and apostolic scriptures. But the basic idea is going to be the same. So here's some few things on the angels. Number one, God made the angels. They, do, they are not eternal. They were creations from God. They were made during the original sec- hexagameron, the f- original six days of creation, sometime in there. Now, the, the Moses in Genesis 1 and 2 is dealing with the creation of things that we see, so the angels aren't listed in there, but it must have been very, very early because the angels, according to Job, were singing together as God was crafting the earth. So right at the beginning, God creates these angels who are rejoicing in all of his works as they watch them unfold. The second point is that we can use two we use two chief words to describe the angels. One is spirit, and the other is angel. And the idea of the spirit refers to the essence of the angels. The idea of angel refers to the work of the angel. So the, the word angelos, or uh, let's see, it's in Hebrew, it's malak, is it, it means messenger. And it can refer to a spiritual messenger, like the angels, what we're normally talking about, or even a a human messenger, like if a guy's running to give a message, he would be a malak or an angelos. The the gospel in, in Greek is the oiangelion. Do you hear the word angel in there, oiangelion? That's the good message. So, so they are spirits uh, who are given the task of delivering God's work and God's word. Here's the definition of the nature of angels, and this is... I'm pulling from this little Bible study that we put together on angels and demons. You can find that at wolfmuller.co. Um, but the, you know, the good place to look is this little book, Outlines of Doctrinal Theology. If you go to, again, if you go to wolfmuller.co and click on the books button, you can find this little angels and demons anthology or this book, Outlines of Doctrinal Theology. And you could buy them, but you can download them for free. And there's these old Orthodox stuff. But here's the definition of angels there. Angels are finite spirits without bodies and complete in their spiritual nature. They are personal, rational, and moral beings of great but limited wisdom and power and of various ranks and orders. It's especially interesting to me. Oh, so, okay, so let me get there because ranks and orders are part of the question. But the, so the angels were created by God. They are spiritual, being complete in themselves, so they never were intended to have a body. They're great in strength, great in number. There's lots of them. And there's good and there's evil angels. Now, all the angels were originally created good. But at some point, led by the devil, the Satan, the chief archangel, uh, Lucifer, the, the, there was a rebellion that happened in heaven. And we think from Revelation 12, a third of the angels fell with the devil. And these angels became what we now refer to as the demons, principalities, powers in the air, and so forth, as Paul will list them. And they're in this eternal battle 
over the kingdom of God, over you and me, and so forth and so on. Now, it's interesting that Paul will talk about the evil angels. When he talks about them, he'll use the military language of ranks and, and this sort of thing. So we see that this, the angels themselves are kind of drawn up in ranks like an army, and that's what the the chief word that the Old Testament will use to describe the Lord's relationship to the angel. He is Lord of Sabaoth. That word Sabaoth means hosts. I used to think it meant Sabbath because it sounds like Sabbath, but Sabaoth is different than Sabbath. Sabbath means rest. Sabaoth means hosts. And it's Lord God of Sabaoth, the Lord God of hosts, that there's ranks, thousands and thousands of angels uh, that are there. What else do we want to say about them? A third, they fall. Oh, yes, the angels also have, they are confirmed. This is interesting. It seems like the Lord arranged for the angels a, a single test, and after that test, they passed or they failed, and they are now confirmed. The good angels are confirmed in their state of bliss. The evil angels are confirmed in their state of perdition. So there is no salvation for the devil and the evil angels. That's what, that's what Hebrews teaches us, that Jesus did not become an angel to save the angels, but a man to save us. The work of the good angels is to worship God and to serve his church. The worship of the evil angels is to despise God and fight against his church. Um, so we have that as well. Let's see, names. Oh, yeah. And do we all have our own guardian angels? That's a good question. The closest we can get on that is is Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus warns against causing one of the little ones to stumble. And if we cause one of the little ones to stumble, he talks about how they, their angels behold the face of the Father in heaven so that we know that there's an angel appointed to the children. Now, do those angels stick w- with us throughout our life? We don't, have, we don't have a scripture that can confirm that. I suppose in some ways uh, we can only hope, but we know that the angels are busy protecting and serving the people of God, and that includes... Uh, you and me. So great question. Who is that? That question was from Emma. That's a great question, Emma. See how good the Lutherans answer the questions? I think that's something to consider there, Emma, something to consider. All right, three minutes left in this segment. So, Ian, we'll start an answer, uh, and then we'll get to it after the break. Religion versus relationship, the baptism of Jesus, or historical criticism. What's next? Historical criticism. All right, let's see what it says here. This says, this is from Scott, who writes, Can you explain his, the historical critical interpretation of the Bible and how Scripture can speak through culture using this approach? Thanks, Scott. This is a good question. Now, what do we mean by historical criticism? This is an approach to the Scripture which grew up in the church in the late 1800s in Germany. Some some might want to push it back further. It was amongst the Lutherans, alas, <clears throat> it was us who caused this trouble, but mostly in the university. It's a kind of an academic pursuit. And the basic idea was they assumed, they assumed that the Bibles had errors, that the, Bibles, that the, that the books of the Bible had human influence that uh, caused them to contain things that were not... Uh, that were not true. So the miracles of the Bible became suspect. Uh, the, the accounts of creation, things like Jonah, etc., uh, etc., et uh, those all became suspect. And what began to happen was they started to look at the variations in the manuscripts, and they started to see, at least to think that they, that they saw, different styles of writing in different places. And, to, uh, and they understood then that the Bible was, a, was an edited book that came from earlier... Um, or earlier writings. The, the main way, the most kind of popular way to recognize historical criticism was the, was the uh, source criticism, especially of the first five books of the Bible. So you have the J-D-E-P. I think this might be outdated. I haven't been keeping up with this. But you have the, the, you have the different sources of the different sections of the books of Moses. And they, the historical critics were looking and saying, oh, that's coming from the Yahwist source, from the Eloist source, from the Deuterist source, and so on and so forth. And they're trying to get behind what's going on in the scriptures to the original sort of writings and what they found in the original writings was political impulses now that's terrible 
I mean, so it's a terrible way to read. It's a terrible way to think. It's a terrible way to live your life. It's a really terrible way to look at the Bible. And it starts, all, all these things start to fall apart when it comes to that. Um, well, yeah, we, uh, look, yeah, I'm getting the warning here. So well, let's go to the break now, and we'll pick this up on the other side. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. You're listening to Cross the Fence, and we're doing your questions, trying to give some answers, talking about higher criticism. More after the break. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Todd Wilkin, inviting you to join us for Issues Etc. weekday afternoons from 3 to 5. Issues Etc. is a live call-in show with a two-fold purpose. We defend and teach the truths rediscovered during the Reformation, grace, faith, scripture, and Christ alone, and we challenge today's postmodern culture with its unbiblical ideology. Issues Etc. live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. I'm Earl Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. The U.S. House of Representatives passed the misnamed Equality Act, granting special protection to LGBT groups. Does it protect or does it actually persecute? Alliance Defending Freedom's Greg Baylor and I discuss it on World Lutheran News Digest, Wednesday at 2.30 and Saturday at 9.30 on Worldwide KFUO. Hey, friends, I mentioned in one of those segments earlier, we're recording this later, this two books, Outlines of Doctrinal Theology and an Anthology on the Angels and Demons. These are two books that we've republished or self-published that are found on the website, wolfmuller.co. There's a book tab. You can look for anthologies or for classic reprints, and you can click on those, and you can download them for free. There's just PDFs that you can download and read in your book reader. You can also order them. We use Lulu to self-publish for a few bucks. You can order these books as well. But there's those books and a lot of other classic Lutheran resources are located on our website. I hope you go and check it out. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and I'm a- answering Ian's questions. Well, mostly they're listener questions. Uh, if you want to submit some more, we do have a lot, but if you want to throw your own question into the bucket, wolfmuller.co, look for the contact button. There's a little form you can fill out. I, I see all those things. Send me some notes. Let me know what you think of the show, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's great. Love to hear from you. We're talking about historical criticism, and Scott had asked, can you explain historical criticism and how Scripture can speak through culture using this approach? We talked about how this this approach to the Scriptures, assuming that the Bible has errors, grew up in the 1800s, and it just flourished in what we recognize now as the mainline denominations. Now, uh, it's the it's there's kind of two things there. You have a sort of naturalistic approach, so you assume that there's not prophecy and fulfillment. So, if a book of the Bible gives a, a prophecy that was fulfilled, you assume that it was written later, and and it, it was written as if it was written before, but it wasn't really giving this prophecy. You assume that some of the incredible texts of the Scripture, like Jonah, was a was a, a fairy tale that didn't actually happen, and especially when it comes to uh, the creation, the six days of creation, the fall into sin, this is all, it's understood to be what? Uh, the higher critic would say there, there's, it's tr- there's true myth that's there. But the main difference, uh, what the higher critic would say, that the Bible is not God's word, but rather the Bible contains God's word, but it also contains man's word. And here's where things get really squirrely. Because if I can look at the text of Scripture and say that it's not authoritative, but in fact my reason, or whatever, has an authority over the text, then I can go and say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what parts of the text are inspired and what parts are not. So that the Scripture, when it comes into conflict with our culture, as an example, or when it comes into conflict with my desire, or when it comes into conflict with my sin, I can simply say, well, that's not authoritative for me. One of the easiest ways to see it is, does a church ordain women or not? Paul says, I don't permit a woman to preach or teach in the church or have authority over a man. That's pretty simple. And the higher critic will say, well, that's Paul's cultural baggage talking. It's not authoritative for us. And they'll go on to say that the Holy Spirit speaks through culture. Now, now think about that. The Holy Spirit speaks through culture. So we have the Bible 
and we have culture, and the two come in conflict with one another, and the higher critic is going to let the culture have the authority. I remember one time I was, this was kind of odd occurrence, but I was sitting there having lunch. It was it was me and my dad and uh, Father Bert, who's in heaven now, uh, and he was an Episcopalian priest who was removed from office for preaching that marriage was between a man and a woman. The three of us were there having lunch in Oregon, and I think Father Bert and I had both had our collars on. And so this guy came over and says, hey, what are you guys? Bert says, I used to be a Episcopalian priest. I'm a Lutheran pastor. And wh- why do you used to be? And, and Bert told him the story, and the guy said, oh, I'm one of the guys you wouldn't like. I'm an Episcopalian priest, and I think... You're wrong, and the Holy Spirit speaks through culture. Wow. He just said that. We were having lunch, and here he's... Anyway, I said to him, so you think that, you know, marriage is not a man and a woman? It can be two men or two women or something like this? And he says, yeah, that's obviously what culture says. And I said, well, look, I was just in Africa. I think I'd just been to South Africa and Botswana, maybe. And I'd just gotten back, and, and I said to this guy, I said, hey, I was just in Africa. And over there, people still think, their culture still says that marriage is a man and a woman. That's what family is. That's what marriage is. I said, why is it that, why is it that the Holy Spirit only speaks through white American culture and not the culture in Africa? And he, he didn't say anything. And so I said, well, I think you're racist. <laughs> Because you, you see what the game is. Is you just the holy you you want the Holy Spirit is now saying whatever you happen to want him to say. Now this is the hard truth, is that if we submit to biblical authority, we know that the Bible is going to tell us things that we don't want to hear. That's why it's God's word. If God if God just came and told us everything we knew and thought already, then what what good is it? Of course, it's the nature of the scriptures to stand against culture. It's the nature of the, of the speaking of God to stand against our own tower of Babel making. So, of course, we can't say that the Holy Spirit speaks through culture. It simply undermines all of this authority, and it makes God exactly who we want him to be. It's crafting God in our own image. It's often been the worst of the higher critics is this Jesus seminar group. I don't even know if they're around anymore, but they used to like, get the Bible and the New Testament and they'd like throw in dice depending on the color that they thought, well, Jesus said that or no way did he said that or maybe he said that, we don't know, etc. And they're voting on what they thought Jesus said. And the result was Jesus sounded just like a liberal professor. So you start do playing this game, and God starts to be a lot like you want him to be, and that is the opposite of having God's word. That's higher criticism. Thanks for that question, Scott. Okay, Ian, we got two. How much time do we have? We got two more questions: religion versus relationship, or the baptism of Jesus. Which one do you want to take up? Uh, the baptism of Jesus. All right. Here comes a question from Paul, who says, "I'm reading through the Gospel according to Saint Mark." I was struck by something I've never noticed before. Why did Jesus get baptized by John the Baptist if Jesus was without sin? This is a great question, Paul. Uh, really helpful for us, in fact. So we want to we think through it a little bit, and I would commend that you would go and also read the account of the baptism of Jesus from, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. In Mark, it just says Jesus was baptized, and they went to the wilderness to be tempted. But but Matthew gives us this little conversation between Jesus and John the Baptist. And just like you, Paul, John the Baptist didn't know why Jesus was coming to be baptized. Jesus shows up, and he says, uh, hey, can you baptize me? And John says, uh, I-, I need to be baptized by you, <laughs> and you you're coming to be baptized by me? So John sees it as well, but Jesus says, Permit it to be so now that we might fill up, that we might fulfill all righteousness. That's an amazing thing for Jesus to say, and it's a little bit of a riddle. Uh, we, want to, we want to notice maybe two things as we think about this. Number one, uh, G- when Jesus was baptized, he was being ordained into the office of the Christ. Sometimes we forget that that Christ is not a name, it's a title. It's Christos in the Greek, uh, Messiah is the Hebrew, and it means anointed one. And there, So there's lots of Messiahs and lots of Christs. If you were a king, you were a Messiah, you were anointed. If you were a priest, you were anointed. 
So you were a Messiah or, or, or a Christ, but they, they all pointed to the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would be anointed with oil beyond, his, beyond all his fellows. And that's the, the Christ and Savior who was coming uh, to save the world. Now, Jesus was not, uh, let it be said with care, uh, please understand what I'm saying. Jesus was not the Christ until he was baptized. Jesus is his personal name. But Christ is his office, just like a pastor. I was Brian a long time before I was pastor. I, I became pastor when I was when I was ordained. So when John baptizes Jesus, he's he's setting him apart. He's anointing him for the office of Messiah. He's now and now his work begins. This is one of the reasons why the Gospels don't really start until the baptism of Jesus, because that's when his work of being the Savior of the world begins. And maybe there's something else here too. That when Jesus is baptized now, as he begins this work, he begins the work of bearing the sins of the world. Now, this is an illustration, so take it for what it's worth. But this is the picture that I like to use when I'm thinking about the baptism of Jesus. If you can imagine the Jordan River kind of running through the middle, and then uh, there's two hills on either side. And on one side, there's, there's this hill that's filled with filthy, disgusting sheep. I mean, it's just... It's loaded with these, they're, they're all covered in mud and flies and blood and filth and they smell terrible and their teeth are rotting and they're just disgusting sheep. Like mangy, you can hardly recognize them as sheep. They're just so bleh. And one by one, John takes these filthy mangy sheep and he dips them in the water of the Jordan River, bloop, and he pulls them out, bloop, and they come out of the water pristine like barely can like you have to wear sunglasses their wool is so white and they they're like cotton balls and they smell like cotton candy Boop, and he puts them on the other side of the river now as you can imagine one after another he takes these mangy sheep and he whoosh, dips them and whoosh, puts them out one after another and he's baptizing all these filthy sinners and then down to the edge, in the midst of this mangy, stinky crowd of sheep, comes one sheep who's so clean that you can hardly recognize him as a sheep. It's like, a, it's like the cloud with the sun shining through it. He's so white, and his teeth are all straight, and he smells good. This is, the, this is a sheep. It's, it's like he's never been dirty, like he's repelling the dirt. This holy white sheep comes down to the edge of the Jordan River, and John says, you don't, you shouldn't be washed, you should wash me. Look at how whole, Look at how perfect you are. And this sheep says, permitted to be so, thus it's fitting for us to fill up all right. Okay, so John takes this, takes this sheep, and he dips it in the water, and as this sheep goes into the water, all the filth and all the silt and all the muck from all the other sheep that's floating on top of the water like an oil slick goes onto this one. <laughs> all of it. And John takes this filthy sheep now that bearing the filth of all of the other sheep and he puts it on the edge of the Jordan River and he points to it and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that's a picture, but I think it gets at the idea of what Jesus is doing uh, for, um, uh, for, for his baptism as he's beginning the work of bearing the sins of the world, of carrying those sins for us. It's really, really quite wonderful and quite beautiful. Now that, now, that comes to its culmination on the cross when God the Father turns his face away from Jesus because Jesus is, is the sin bearer. Like Paul says, he who knew no sin, God made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this means that in, in our own baptism, God the Father can say the thing that he says to Jesus in his baptism, Behold, uh, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That, that, that the same words spoken to the Son are spoken also to us when we are baptized. That God is well pleased with us. Not because we've done everything right, but because our sins are forgiven. Because our sins are washed away. Because Jesus took our sins to the cross. 
So, so this is a, a, a really fantastic thing. Sometimes we call baptism the sacrament of justification. And remember that justification to the forgiveness of sins, it's not just a, it's not just a taking away of our sins. It's actually a, a giving to us the righteousness of Christ. So that God doesn't just wipe our slate clean. He actually takes the perfect keeping of the law that Jesus has accomplished. She takes that and he puts it to our account. So he doesn't impute our sins, but he does impute the righteousness and the perfection of Jesus. That that belongs to us, so that God looks at us and he sees us as if we're holy and perfect and without sin altogether uh, because of what God has done for us in Christ. That's really great. So thanks for that question, uh, Paul, about the baptism of Jesus. Really, uh, really quite fantastic. All right, Ian, what do you think about that answer? It's good. Informative. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, approved by Ian. <laughs> God be God be praised. Hey Ian, I want to before we go. I know we're running out of time. I want to thank you for you've been producing cross defense as we as long as we've been doing it for the last year or so. So thanks for all your work. Uh, God be praised for this and your internship. I hope you learned a lot, uh, and thanks for supporting the show. I hope uh, I hope God will be with you as you go forward on your in your next endeavors. Yes, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. And thanks by thanks for thanks for the listeners. We run out of time here. I want to thank also you all for for listening and for sticking with us in this cross defense thing. We it is really quite wonderful. I mean, do we, we in some ways this show is an experiment every week, uh testing the hypothesis that theology is good, that theology is delightful, that theology is wonderful. And so we're pushing back against the devil's lie that this is that this is not boring that this is not delightful that this is not good and and we want our imaginations our thoughts and our minds to be captivated by this wonder that Jesus is the one who bears our sins he takes our sins away so that he can deliver the righteousness of God to us now that's good that's wonderful it's delightful it's comforting and it gives us the joy and the confidence and the peace to live, to suffer, and even to die in the name of Jesus, knowing that he's our Savior, that he's coming back for us, that we'll be raised with him on the last day, that we'll sit with him in glory in the new heavens and the new earth. God be praised. Hey, thanks for listening to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. God's peace be with you. We'll talk to you again soon. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Thanks again for being a podcast listener. If there was something helpful uh, in this show that you think would be helpful for someone else, please. Please send it to him, share. That's how word gets around. We want to spread the law and the gospel into every ear. So if there's someone who could be benefited by some of the answers that were there in today's show, then please do send it along. And if you've got your own questions that you'd like us to take up in future shows, please send them to us. Again, that's wolfmuller.co. Click the contact button. And while you're there, you can find a bunch of other theology, audio, video, blog stuff, uh, trips, all sorts of books and the book that we mentioned outlines of doctrinal theology that's there you can either buy it or just download it for free and you'll have all this all the great theology in your pocket so uh, so take a look there and thanks for listening to cross defense